I actually like the word mixologist. Yeah, I think it has some baggage in terms of just like the actual like word mixologist, but as a useful differentiator between people who stand behind the bar and serve people drinks and people who think about recipes, it's really useful. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. John DeBerry is a bartender extraordinaire, but also a great writer and spokesperson for the bar world. I wanted to have John on to talk about the rise of the NA movement and how spiritless drinking is hardly without spirit. I also find out what it's like launching his own NA brand and what the future holds for the celebrity mixologist. I so love catching up with him, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. John DeBerry, welcome to Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really uh, excited to have you in the studio. We we chatted when your first book came out, Drink What You Want, which I love, uh, over Zoom. And now we're IRL. Yeah, no, it's like s- surreal being here in person. I know, uh, in, in Penguin Random House, in your publisher. But I want to start with your history because it's really cool. Because you kind of walked into PDT, right? You walked into that bar PDT and were like, I kind of like I like your drinks and I want a job. Is that's like an abridged version? Pretty, but. pretty literally, yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, I went to college with someone named Don Lee, who is yeah. a bar industry legend, absolute legend. <laughs> and we actually we actually lived together. We were in oh. the same apartment. He was my RA, basically. Is that he Columbia? Was, yeah, it was yeah, Columbia. yeah. He I was actually that. he was like the RA of the RAs in the building. Wow. So he was like the boss RA. I think it was called the CR CP. Oh, sorry. Uh, so like <laughs> like that like the absolute like number one narc. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. number one narc. Yeah. Okay. Or not. Or as, not. As the case may <laughs> very, very well was. Don's a cool guy. <laughs> uh, um, so we actually worked together at Murray's Cheese for a while. Yeah. I opened I opened the uh, Grand Central location. Yeah. And we I worked in like the old Cornelia Street place. That mm-hmm. was like the butcher shop. Yeah. Um, and after college, I spent a few years working as an investigator for the city. I did a very futile job investigating police misconduct. My gosh. <laughs> which is like a whole other podcast if you want yeah, to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and afterwards, I was sort of planning to go to law school and kind of looking for a job to stay busy and, you know, make money and be alive. Uh, and PDT had just opened. I'd been a few times and I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like, wow. It's like going through a, going through a phone booth and like, you know. Yeah. I didn't know shit about cocktails. I was like, I took a Columbia bartending course. It was like pretty useless. For was, like to make it get a job? Yeah. yeah. It was like this Supposed to be this like onboarding for like this um, catering cater waiter stuff that yeah. never panned out. Like mm-hmm. it was basically if you, if you were their friend you could do it, but if you didn't, then fuck off. Basically. Yeah. Um, so I learned how to make like a grasshopper basically, mm-hmm. and that was it from the, from that experience. But then um, yeah, so I was like, you know, desperate for desperate for work, and you know, I was like, hey, like, uh, can I work at PDT? Like. I'm not an idiot. And Don was like, sure, why not? Actually, it's good to hire people who have no baggage because we're trying to do things a certain way. And a lot of bartenders, especially back in like 2008 when this was, you know, had come from various schools of, of bartending, you know, the free pouring or whatever. You know, there's a lot of like flair leg- bartending, legacy, you know, yeah. baggage that people had. And he was like, oh, we can like 
build you in our image. Yeah. So I was behind the bar with him and John Darragon for a couple weeks, like provisionally, and then I had to sort of pass the Jim Meehan test. Mm. What's and the Jim Meehan test at that time? I don't know. It was basically just this, like, very quick, like, in job interview almost where, like, I was, like, actually literally were behind the bar, and he came in, and we just, like, talked for, like, five minutes. Did you talk about, like, wax canvas and, like, fashion shit? Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Jim, that's, like, more of his bag than drinks. No, I mean, it was it was pretty quick. It was mostly just, like, a vibe check almost. Yeah, and I think yeah. it was a lot of, like, Completely. you know, there was, like, the Don and, and, and John Darren had sort of signed off on me, and so it was kind of like, yeah. okay, well, let's just, like, make sure this guy isn't a total psycho. And so then, the grasshopper... <laughs> You like the grasshopper, though. I've, You've written about it a lot. I did. I just did a video for Food 52 about the grasshopper. I yeah. mean, that was the first drink it sounds like you learned. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That's I, had, cool. I had a viewing party of Barbarella when I was a, oh. a freshman in college with oh, my friends. Oh, yeah. that's and you made the grasshoppers. Back to PDT in the, in the 2000s, you know, so that you walk in, it's like super dark mm-hmm. and... It was darker like, when I worked there. I kept the lights really. You low. kept it. I mean, it yeah. really like a mood, <laughs> a, an era. Like what? What kind of shit went on at PDT that you that you can talk about, or maybe can't talk about, but want to? talk You know, about nothing now. actually that that salacious happened. Okay, um, lies. As far as complete I lies. I mean, absolutely. Maybe lies. like the, I think that the straight people hooked up a lot. Like that 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 <laughs> happened, uh, but I wasn't I wasn't that lucky. Um, <laughs> oh man, really? <laughs> Wait, not once. I never hooked up with the coworker. Oh, okay. But what about a guest? I got some numbers. Oh, actually, yeah. you know, I did hook up with a guest once. I got a, I got a number once, and then we he I met up with him and, like, my husband, like, a, like a year or so later, and something happened. And he was very drunk, so it was, like, kind of a weird thing. Okay. That was only happened once. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, so um, we will move on in your resume because you have a pretty great resume, but I do not want to skip Momofuku. Mm-hmm. Momofuku-sam... Um, closed after 13 years, I believe. Um, you were the bar director yeah. at Momofuku writ large, the whole thing, shebang. Yeah. I mean, uh, also a, an institution like PDT. What was that like working there? Yeah, it was pretty cool because PDT is my first bartending job, <laughs> and then Sambar was my second bartending job. That's nuts. And, and you those ran are my the show. those are my only two bartending jobs. Yeah, yeah, both. <laughs> I read a bio of me somewhere that someone else wrote that's like John DeBerry's worked everywhere from PDT to Momofuku. That's really funny. It's almost like that's like the two thousands. That's like Bloghouse music version of bartending. I know. Yeah, you it's know? almost a cliche. But yeah, and it was like the exact opposite place to work. You know, I could wear whatever I wanted. It was like literally on the street. Like, you know, you'd open up those gates and like it was like the most exposed bartending job you could have, you know, next to like being literally outside. Um, and I came in. It was also another Don Lee Coattail situation where he had just launched the bar program there. And it was really at the beginning, it was almost just like a spirits program with mm-hmm. like a person who served, um, you know, neat pours on the rock. There weren't even like cocktails. Really? Um, it was then, mostly just a spirits It was, like, literally just a spirits program. Bourbon mostly? Yeah. Brown spirits? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it evolved to, like, really – it was sort of, like, mildly-ish Japanese, you know? It was, like, nothing fancy. There was no, like, creative cocktails. It was, like, a yeah. daiquiri. It was, like, a very, like, austere, old-fashioned riff, like, those kinds of things. And then um, it sort of gradually expanded. Don went on to become, like – you know, the overlord of cocktails um, that he is now. Yeah. And so that kind of left 
a little bit of a vacuum and then informally, you know, there's people who were, you know, the managers at, at Sambar who were like in control of the beverage program. And I just sort of was just, it was like annoying and just like in my own spare time would like mock up cocktail menus and be like, hey, can we do this? And they'd be like, fine. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was working with like really cool people like yeah. Christina Turley and Teresa Pow Pow and, um, and, uh, and they were very into it, and they had their wine thing going on, so it was very complimentary. I think the wine uh, at, at Momofuku Co., especially at that era, was, like, groundbreaking, right? They were doing really interesting lists, maybe natural wine before natural wine was a word. Probably. I wasn't really super involved. In, I only became involved in Co. after Co. reopened in yeah. 2014 like or 15 or whatever that was. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the pairings there were, were pretty legendary from what from what I understand. I went a few times um, so I got some firsthand experience. Let's talk more about that era. I mean, Robert Simonson's new book writes about modern classics, and it really he crystallizes this very narrow window, this era of the modern classic, which was like 08, 07, like OOs. Now, did you feel like at the time when you were working at PDT and Momofuku, your only two jobs, but also <laughs> being an influential, influential figure in the industry, did you feel like you were writing history at that moment? I mean, it didn't feel like that. I don't think I ever had like a moment where I was like, Hmm. Like, yeah. Wow. Like this is, this is one for the history books, boys. Uh, <laughs> it's like Jerry Thomas and you, but it did feel like, you know, I think very early on, like the reason why I abandoned my, I literally didn't even like bother to cancel my LSATs. I just didn't go. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, the reason why I felt like comfortable kind of leaping over to that is because it definitely felt like there was a trajectory and there was like a lot of you know, un, not uncharted, but like a lot of like free space in the industry to sort of progress beyond, um, you know, working behind the bar, you know, which, yeah. you know, I, I, I enjoyed while I was doing it, but I didn't want to do it forever. Um, and so I saw that at that, at that time, you know, I think it was sort of maybe hard to separate from the places where I was working, especially Momofuku, where I, when I started, the office was two people. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I had just opened mm-hmm. and then when I left I had opened 10 restaurants you know in DC Vegas you know Canada I almost almost started working on the LA LA restaurant before uh, before I left um, so I saw like a lot of growth happening and it was like really cool to see and it was really cool to um, you know realize that this is something that you could kind of get ahead of so it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily about like the history books it was just sort of about like oh it doesn't look like a lot of people are doing this right now so this mm-hmm. might be a cool little niche for me to carve out did you feel the consumer at the time um was kind of rabid for cocktails i feel like maybe we can and we'll talk about na soon but like at that time is like before pdt and the area you were working in cocktail I and mean, we can talk about flat iron lounge go back that far but mm. like really cocktails were not a thing. Like, I think our listeners may not realize that, that they were certainly in in nooks and crannies around the world they were a thing, but not in the mainstream and certainly not downtown and cool. So, like, did you feel people were going to cocktail bars as a, as a like, a piece of cultural currency almost? Yeah, totally. I mean, it also, it was it was really cool, too, because you the, the maybe it was another reason why I was so drawn to it is because, like, 
the general public was pretty easily impressed at the time. You could, <laughs> you, you could put a Negroni on the menu and it was like groundbreaking. And it was like, for me, it was like a groundbreaking discovery. It was like David Embry, you know, and that was like something that was so cool. <laughs> and it was like, you know, like you could, there was like a lot of stones that were unturned. Yeah. And it was like very easy to be like, hey, look, like this is what a daiquiri actually tastes like. And now it's a bit like, you know, okay, we, we get it. Daiquiris are good. But like, but like back in like 2009, you could put a daiquiri on a menu at like a Michelin star restaurant. And people would be like, oh shit, like I thought this was like, from a blender and you're yeah. like no like it's actually this thing and from like, Cuba like and it's really amazing more variations and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of like enthusiasm and, and, and a lot of like bottled up knowledge that was like squirreled away that hadn't been sort of unlocked in a long time very interesting and we could talk all about that era longer and I, I maybe let's I'll have you back and, and we can talk about stories but I want to six part series with it, John DeBerry it really could I mean it really <laughs> mixology oh can we even use the word mixologist anymore I, I, I actually like the word mixologist yeah. yeah, I think it has some baggage in terms of just, like, the actual, like, word mixologist. But as a as a useful um, differentiator between people who stand behind the bar and serve people drinks and people who think about recipes and develop recipes, yeah. it's really useful. Because I think a lot of people, the reason why people get really annoyed by the word mixologist is because people just think it means good bartender. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, not true at all. Like, you can be a fantastic bartender. You can look amazing behind the bar. You can be, you know able to stay up until 5 a.m. and, you know, every time you close the, the register, it's perfect and you remember mm-hmm. all your regulars' drinks and it's, you know, your total flaws. You're a fun guy. But you're like, hey, I have this, like, bottle of, like, you know, creme de cassis. Can you make something with it? And they're like, no. Yeah. So, you know, it's just two different skills. It's a chef. I mean, you could call it a liquid chef. That's I, I think. So bad. Sorry. <laughs> you're like. <laughs> Who am I to police people's language? But I, I think, I think that, not. like, you know, a chef also is another thing where it's like. Is it more about running a kitchen? Yeah. You know? It's like, it's, we know it always bothers me when people say, like, oh, I'll be your sous chef. Mm-hmm. And you're like, if you knew what sous chef meant, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. <laughs> you would, you're actually, yeah, lower down. Um, let's talk about NA because we're running this in January, which is like hashtag dry January. LOL. LOL. I, total LOL because I don't drink. I haven't, it's been years and years, and I used to write about this stuff, and I've been kind of on the NA tip for a long time. You've uh, written about it. You've you've done years without alcohol, which is is really interesting as somebody who works in the industry um, so closely. Um, but I want to start positive um, in terms of the NA bar world. Um, has NA helped the bar world as a whole? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that my my most like salient NA proof point was when. I was so it was sort of like 2016, 17, 18, maybe. Like I was working at, at Momofuku, and like a lot of the um, guests from Co were really into NA because they were very serious food people. Mm-hmm. They like sort of they didn't, you know, they would come for the lunch. It was like it started at eleven. They would like have like a root beer, you know. It would just be kind of like hmm. um, because they wanted to taste the food, or maybe yeah. they didn't drink or whatever. You know, it's just for whatever reason. Uh, you know, they just really wanted to focus on the food. So um, we started a lot of sort of. R&D with uh, drinks there and the you know you have you know I think that this is another thing about high-end NA is that like you have the space and you have the time to work on it it's really it's kind Mm -hmm. of a lot of work to put together these ingredients you know yourself rather than buying them from you know a distributor so um, that's that sort of bled out to all the other, other programs and when I noticed when I would put on a substantial you know we would put on like 
NA sodas, we would put NA cocktails, we would have menus where you could order a drink either NA or A, you know, and it mm-hmm. was like, so you started expanding these options and the categories, the category of NA grew from like three or four items to like maybe eight. And every time you put that on, you made that change, you could look at the reports, you could look at the numbers and you could see like, oh, there's just an objective increase in, in beverages sold. So it just means that there are people who are otherwise inclined to res- have water would yeah. then are able to be included in this experience. So financially, it makes a lot of sense because you're like basically opening up a new avenue for sales. And then, and then just from a purely hospi- hospitality standpoint, like the whole point of hospitality is to be welcoming and to be accommodating. Yeah. And so if you're like telling someone to fuck off because they can't consume something that you just didn't feel like worrying about, like that's that's pretty shitty. So Inclusivity yes. is a great point with na and and certainly i've been extremely excited when i've seen a cool na drink on the menu i think let's talk about some of the downside because there is some one is that my observation is that when bars have done na it's been so sweet Mm -hmm. it's so sweet and it's hard for me to be excited about an na drink when i know there's gonna be a beautiful meal after it and i'm drinking literally dr pepper Mm. type of sweet i love dp (laughs) i certainly love dp same um but I don't love it before a meal, like as right, the first thing you're having after like not eating for seven, eight hours. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's it, that's tough because I think that, you know, one of the reasons why alcohol is so compelling is because it's a physical substrate. It's very useful. You know, you can pull flavors off of like you put a tea bag in a cup of vodka. It turns dark almost instantly. You put the, do the same with water. It takes a while. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, the kind of extraction power of alcohol is really powerful. So you don't have that same like thing to layer yeah. your flavors on top of. So usually the stand-in for that is sugar. Yes. Um, it's And that really good point, John, because I think um, there is a real difficulty in translating like the flavors of the Negroni to NA, though I think that Phony Negroni is pretty bomb. It's pretty solid. Pretty solid yeah. as, a, as a bottled cocktail. Another issue with NA um, I want to talk to you about is the actual category, which is separate from bar world, which is more of a retail world, is like the category of NA, NA spirits, and you're in this world, you were in this world. There's too many of them, it feels like. Do you agree or disagree? I mean, have you been to Aster? Yeah, I've been to Aster the yeah, last year. Yeah, look how year. much rum there is. Look, how much, look, look, look at that whole, yeah. that whole section. And that you wouldn't say there's too many spirits on the, in the world. Fair. Absolutely. I just think that they're probably the ratio of good to not good is probably higher than it's going to be in the future. So I think a lot of the filtration that happens through a mature market will just make it seem as though there's more options and the kind of like less interesting and less delicious ones will sort of gradually. It's like anything, you know, it's like. At, you know, we love music from the '90s or the '70s mm-hmm. because we forgot about all the bad, all the bad songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We only the, only the good <laughs> songs remain in the Spotify playlist. Yeah. Great exactly. point about Aster and Rum, and I and I want to ask you about the NA Bottle Shop because it seems like there's a lot of venture capital flowing into this idea of the um, the V the um, I'm gonna do that again. There's a lot of VC money. It seems flowing into this concept of the NA Bottle Shop. I think there's a few brands that have opened around the country. Is there a future with like just the NA bottle shop in our country? I think so, yeah, for sure. That's cool. So what excites yeah. you about actually going to a place and getting an NA this or that off the shelf? Well, I think it goes back to the inclusivity thing yeah. where there's there you know I've I've you know they 
I've worked with a lot of these bottle shops, you know, in New York and L.A., and, and like, they, you see people walk in, and there's a certain type of person who doesn't drink alcohol who walks in, and they're, like, really emotional. You know, it's, mm-hmm. like, really cool to see, like, this thing that you didn't think that you'd ever be able to think about or engage with or, like, have fun with is just, like, oh, it's just, like, this whole world opens up in front of you. So it's really cool to see that. Um, and, it, yeah, and so I think that there's definitely a future for these dedicated especially given our like really convoluted liquor laws mm-hmm. you know a lot of problems with that i had when i was working uh, on my own non-alcoholic drink brand is that you'd go to like a wine store like a super cool very hipstery wine store that would like definitely get mm-hmm. the flavors of what you know my brand what it was it was like vinegary it's like very kind of like a little weird i love and it. so you go it's to a natural wine shop and it's like this fits right in with all this stuff mm-hmm. you know you go to like a really like avant-garde spirits place and they're like they, they're down because they have like the amaro program that's gonna like you know be synonymous with it but you legally can't sell non-elk next to those things in those same stores mm. in, in like many states this is like a many like 20 30 states yeah at least new york you yeah. know there's like you, know, you go into cal you go to california and you go to the cvs and there's like a wine section that's like really disorienting for me but like <laughs> you know a lot of places it's like you know and then there's a different tax structure for this stuff yeah. you know it's like there's very siloed so like just being able to have like a carved out space is really nice and also just from a safety perspective i think for a lot of people like they want to be assured that there's no like there's really no alcohol in this yeah. you know i've gotten that question a lot I think, yeah, there's a real fear that maybe there's, like, a blending of, yeah. of like, light, low, softer, or lower ABV and yeah. NA. Yeah, it's true. Now, yeah. let's talk about Proto because um, you launched this brand, you ran this brand, and now you're winding it down. Yeah. Um, and thank you for being honest about it, winding it down. I think some folks kind of fade in the sunset and don't actually make the statement we're winding it down. But I want to hear what it was like to launch and what were maybe some of the struggles and challenges you faced. Uh, well, I, I got really lucky uh, in the beginning in that it was something that I was I, – I, was, I, I wasn't approached, but I found out about, like, this accelerator program, and they were just basically looking for uh, proposals. And I was like, eh, why not? And so I had – you know, I've been working on NA for a long time just my own – in my own career. Like, you know, I had some back pocket things at PDT because there was at the time there were no non-alc drinks on the menu and very few people would bother to go through the gauntlet that that is getting into that place if they weren't drinking but every once in a while there were some people so you wanted to be able to have something for them and then I also for a few years I worked on the food and wine they did an annual cocktail book and Mm -hmm. uh, I I really wanted to make sure that I mean there was a mocktail section uh, that I kind of inherited and I wanted to make sure that chapter was really good so I tried to get bartenders to like submit non-alcoholic cocktails and this was back in like 2014 or whatever and they were kind of like do I have to (laughs) (laughs) and I was like you know actually you don't like just send me your cocktails and I will remake them in the non-alc version Mm. of them and so I learned a lot of like ways to like not only like literally physically make cocktails but then also just like investigating why certain drinks tasted good mm-hmm. and then getting that channeling that exactly. back into the yeah. drink yeah yeah exactly so it's it's less about just sort of copying them more about just like transmitting the vibe mm-hmm. through a different um substance. easier said than done easier definitely easier said oh my than gosh so getting the dark and stormy into a bottle is na is, is tricky it's yeah tricky business yeah yeah so uh so i had a bunch of these things that i was working on so i wrote up this quick pitch um and then i forgot about it and then and then the deadline to hear back passed, and I was like, oh, I guess I didn't get it. And then, like, three days later, they were like, sorry, we're a little bit behind, but, mm. like, you got it. So I got this, like, grant to work on the development of the project, and then I actually got investment uh, from this fund's, like, parent company. 
And so I got to put up none of my own money. Mm-hmm. It's only my own time and you know, kind of opportunity cost of what it maybe yeah. doing something else. Significant though, but, of course. Um, but I just got – and I was working with people who had a lot of experience developing brands, not necessarily non-alcoholic, but like people who worked in retail and who worked with spirits and you know, a lot of different like sort of converging you know, expertise. And I got to like develop this whole thing myself and just I had I got to learn the most obscure, arcane, hmm. minute shit that you'd never have to mm-hmm. <laughs> you'd never think to worry about until the time comes and you've realized you ordered a thousand caps and they don't fit on your bottle and how can you find Fuck. how can you find twenty seven centimeter or twenty seven millimeter bottle yeah. caps in twelve hours because you just have your bottler is pouring this into your bottle. So all these little like panic moments and like trademark law and you know if the the height that UPS considers like acceptable to drop your packages from and doing drop tests mm-hmm. in your kitchen and like <laughs> yeah it was so just this really a cool. direct to consumer brand it yeah was I mean it wasn't it, it was meant to be it was meant to be an on premise brand because uh, okay. I, I really wanted to provide a solution for bars and restaurants that didn't have the time or the space or the inclination to do their own mise en place. Mm-hmm. So I was like, here is this, like, you know, I had Rivington Spritz, which was kind of like an Aperol Spritz kind of. It has, like, some Chinese rhubarb and strawberry and gentian and it's kind of bright and refreshing and bubbly. And then the Ludlow Red was sort of like a Dubonnet, Lille Rouge, mm-hmm. Vermouth, red wine kind of, like, vibe. And so I was like, you don't have to do, you don't have to train your bartenders who don't want to do this, you know, to make five drinks a night. You know, you can just buy this, keep it in your fridge, and you're done. Yeah, and pour um, it, and, and and also the brand equity Proto would, would grow. Yeah. That, the idea is that you would order Proto right, you, like you would order many other drinks out there. Like you discover it in a restaurant, yeah. and then you'd be able to buy it online. Um, and so my first my first account was Grammy Tavern. It was pretty yeah. sweet. <laughs> nice. Uh, and so I launched uh, Ludlow Red in the fall of 2019, uh, and then... Oh, uh, huh. Yeah. Funny. So and there you go. I was interesting. <laughs> so something that live in bars and restaurants launches in the fall of 2019. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And so I had I had carbonation issues with the Rivington Spritz, so I held that out because we designed a custom bottle. The last trip I t- took before COVID was um, I went to Mexico City for like 18 hours to visit a factor glass factory mm. uh, and like learn about like oh yeah, it's the loudest place I've ever been in my entire life. By the way. Um, wow. And so the full launch of the of the brand uh, was slated for June of 2020. Yeah. So it didn't work out. You're winding it down. I mean, I think it did work out. Sorry. I think it did work out. It worked out for a long time. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really funny because, like, a lot of, you know, you talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and you talk to, like, people who have, you know, succeeded and they sort of retroactively justify all of their choices and all of their circumstances to make it seem as though it was always just going to happen that way. Yeah. And it sort of discounts like how dumb luck everything is. You know, it's like I have, I was born like literally with a silver spoon in my mouth. Like I went to, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, I went to Columbia. Mm-hmm. I had like the best bar resume. I created a liquid that was like super delicious. And when it came time to try to do my own fundraising after my investor sort of abruptly walked walked away at, at on like March 11th, 2020. Yeah, man, I couldn't do it. Yeah, you know they were like, you know, people were like, oh, you know, you're kind of too too small. You know, like you don't I'll talk to me when your revenues at a million a year, and you're like, well, why would I talk to you if I needed? I, I wouldn't need money then. Yeah, yeah. So th- <laughs> it, it, there was this was out of your hands a lot of this, and you did succeed. But you're you're also we're, we're kind of getting out of the pandemic. NA is rising. We talked about the excitement in the category. So 
why then walk away right now from this from this brand that you that is yours? Well, I mostly didn't have a choice. So uh, the 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 production runs are extremely expensive and they're yeah. super large and line time is really hard to get. Line time is like line, you know, production yeah. line. When stuff's being made. And yeah. I got a note from my from my bottler, which was literally the only bottler in the world that had every over every capability that I needed. I had glass, I had screw cap, I had vinegar, I had carbonation, mm-hmm. and it was like there was only one place in the world that could do this. They Where were, is this at? It's a secret. Oh, really? No way. They actually yeah. it is a secret. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a secret. But it's not where you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't actually know where to think it is. <laughs> As an aside, maybe that's your next business is I, being the honestly, number two. Honestly, I've like definitely thought about it. I, I actually mean, thought about it before <laughs> I before I found them. I was like, we should just make our own production yeah. facility and uh, then just like do contract bottling for people. So anyways, you know, you heard it here first. Yeah, you heard it first. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um so not only is I got, I got a note from my bottler saying like, "Hey, um, we don't have the capacity to do a production run for you until 2024," <laughs> um, and then all of my obscure like botanical extractions were done uh, by these like vendors that do you know these things for you know that's their job and uh, their minimums are like eat like. Twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. You know, you have to get like, f- you know, fifty gallons, of, and you need only need four. Right. That's, well, yeah. yeah. Or you'd buy, you know, fifty gallons of rhubarb extract, and you'd coast on it for two years because it was basically stable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did like I basically, and then the glass is like a dollar a bottle, and you need, to, and it's like sixty thousand dollars, sixty thousand bottles is your minimum run, mm-hmm. and usually they did do like. A million bottles. You know, it's like the, the scale of this is just so massive. Yeah. I would need to basically come up with like two or three million dollars in order to start another production run. And I had about like twenty thousand dollars in the bank account. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I just it, did the math. You laid it out and, and it just wasn't worth proceeding, but it obviously and it's delicious. Like I went to that one an event, I believe, in the summer of twenty nineteen and tasted both both SKUs and I loved it. I loved it. Is that right? Is that the right math? Is that the rooftop? And rooftop. Yeah, yeah, that was the launch event. That was actually October or September. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, it was like right when before stuff went down. And yeah. I loved it. And I was like, this is cool. And I and you brought me some product. Thanks for bringing of me course, some dead yeah. stock, man. That's yeah, dead stock drinks. <laughs> Bargain basement prices. For sure. But, free. <laughs> but I don't want to dwell on the past because it seems like you clearly have done all of these. Like you've done the work like to, to actually launch a product. You know what you have to do. Are you thinking about a next product or category? Or are you going to take a little? Probably pause? not. No. I, the reason, and then the other reason why is is because like, I basically, I have a business of being like myself, yeah. basically, yeah. Uh, and that uh, pays me pretty well. And it's yeah. it's also it's great because there's no like sort of like overhead or like anything else. It's basically like. You know, like I do, I write an article, I write a book, you know, I do videos, I have a consulting business, you know, it's like these things are all just like direct, it's a lot simpler. Yeah. You can like live <laughs> your yeah. life and not have to worry about uh, a glass factory in Mexico. Yeah. yeah. Or like, yeah, or having to worry about, you yeah. know, accidentally poisoning someone, which is like my, my OCD brain always goes to Oh that. my but gosh. It, yeah, it never happens, but like I'm just saying. No, like, it's it just, wouldn't, but man, waking up at night with that feeling. Yeah. yeah. So you want to be a drinks entrepreneur out there is what we're saying. <laughs> All right, John, I want to uh, talk about bartending because we've talked about NA and I want to get into like some of the spirited stuff because you've created a lot of drinks. Do you have a favorite drink that you've invented? Probably the shark. The shark. Yeah, the shark is this like blue drink that I made that was like it, – it's funny because it actually kind of – now that I'm thinking more about it, 
um, it's like the the shark. It was like this blue drink that came on the menu at PDT, and I think it was like I want to say like 2011, maybe yeah, yeah. like two, it was like it was like kind of when the cocktail movement like jumped the shark. So I, I never yeah. actually did it that way. It wasn't meant to be like a sort of in in joke. It was really just like. Mm-hmm. It was actually named after a, a, my coworker Sean, who now live, who works in Portland. He was his nickname was Sharky. Oh yeah, and we loved um, like blue drinks, like blue curacao. It was like this funny joke that we like had a secret bottle <laughs> at PDT <laughs> that like Jim couldn't see, um, and so I was working on this like you know tiki tropical cocktail that was like buttered rum because it was like a riff on like the cinema highball which is what don lee did it was on the, on the menu that when i first started that that was really cool it was like fat washed rum mm-hmm. with uh popcorn butter uh and uh so that was sort of took that idea and i wanted to make something that was kind of like warm and wintry so it was like frangelico and like you know all the like, pineapple and cream mm-hmm. um and then i had apricot like brandy apricot liqueur in it and I was tasting it with Jim and Jim's like no apricot it doesn't really work it's like not quite appropriate for this drink like how about curacao mm. and I was like how about blue curacao yeah you switch it over to that <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it was kind of a dare and then it just went on and so uh and it's this blue bright blue drink with a with an umbrella and like you know it's just like this ridiculous drink that you you don't expect to get at a very kind of like buttoned up place like PDT, mm-hmm. and now it's it's still on the menu. It's like if I have to go there and like prove that I'm a, like that I am who I am, I'm like this is like John DeBerry here. This is my license. Like I I, used I to created here. that drink. Is it? Do you, no, let me ask you about this. Do you see that that drink on menus around the country in the world? No, they don't. No one's no, no one's copying it. Okay. No, I was actually at the bane of a lot of bartenders' existence because <laughs> the batch for that was really complicated mm-hmm. and really annoying. And you'd it would be like three ounces of batch per drink, and it was one of those drinks mm-hmm. where you make one and people are like, what is that? And then you have to make five more nightmare so so people would always be like cursing me like john like i hate you for making this drink okay <laughs> so i haven't seen it on other menus i've seen it like on instagram and yeah. i put it in my first book um as a blender drink because pebble ice isn't really hard that's not easy to find yeah um but i wish i could see it in more in more uh, on more menus in in around the world but it's i understand because it's really complicated yeah and kind of a hassle to make most so, overrated yeah. drink let's go there let's just do it hmm overrated I think I've said this before, but I think the Negroni is overrated. I don't think it's bad. I just think wow. I just think it's like we get it. It's it's just relax. Yeah, chill with that. Are you equal parts, or do you go a little different? I think with one of the parts. three. Okay. I like the syrupy, cloying nature of Campari. Yeah. So it's like I'm not trying to get rid of that. Like that's part of the drink. Right. I think yeah. some people like dial down and dial up the gin. It's gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. For those who've never had it, which is like nobody, everyone's had a Negroni. Again, the phony Negroni is pretty dope, though. Mm-hmm. I yeah, give. and I think it's that's it goes to like the the use of sugar mm-hmm. and probably glycerin in the phony Negroni. I'm not I'm not speaking on any authority, but usually glycerin is also a good base for non-alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's syrupy, you know, so you can you can load up all that gentian, all of those, you know, all that all that good Campari botanicals into like a sugary liquid, and it still kind of doesn't taste super sweet because Campari is syrupy as hell it is syrupy that's why we love it i think yeah. uh we just have a sweeter palate in america i feel uh i guess is it switching i don't know i think everyone has a sweet palate i don't i think everyone everyone yeah. loves to talk about how they don't like anything sweet that's kind of my implying i'm saying like everyone says they like bitter yeah. but they actually everyone likes sweet in america i think everyone likes sweet everywhere really i feel in asia it's uh it's sour bitter 
I feel, in umami, which is the fifth. But I feel in America, looking at our fast food industrial complex, we certainly have gone sweet. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said for, like, is it is it the innate human attraction to sugar, or is it, like, the food industry, like... Cheap. Engineering food to be maximally addictive. True. I mean, the McRib, look at that. That's like a sugar bomb. Yeah, I haven't had one either in a while, but it's, like, one of those things that you kind of crave. It's, like, barbecue sauce mm-hmm. sugar. That's sugary. Um, yeah, ketchup. Well, I'm thinking about it. Any beers, they're pretty great. I love any beer. They're like I've been drinking. I crush any beer. They're I mean too. I yeah. drink. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, Langanitas has a great one. I really oh the, the hop water. Yeah, the hop water's cool. Yeah. I mean, athletic obviously. Yeah. Are there any other NA beers that we should be checking out? Um, uh, I mean, athletic is one of my big ones, yeah. but they don't need any help. No. Um, there's Owls. It's pretty good. Cool. Where's there that was, from? Do you know offhand? I'm I think putting it's you on from spot. around here. Cool. Yeah. I went to like Three's Brewing the other day and I was like surprised they had like two NA beers on the menu. Oh man, awesome. And they weren't even, they weren't theirs. They were <laughs> yeah. other people's beers, but I was like, wow, good for you. You see that a lot of breweries these days. You see Athletic on their menus or you see some other, you know, it's interesting to yeah. see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, I mean, to me now, it's like whenever I go someplace and there isn't at least a couple of options, I'm always like, really? I know, right? Yeah. When it, five years ago, it would be like, wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I feel like, but if you get out of New York, you're you're not really seeing any beers as, as widely. Um, and listeners, please write in if, if you have a great NA beer spot, because I, I don't want to generalize. But I feel like it's like such a, like, as you said, like, instead of water, you have an NA beer. It's going to, you're going to add five, eight dollars to your, mm-hmm. to your bill, yeah. right? You wrote about. The one of the best things you've you've had you've drank was the NA pairing at Vespertine. Yeah, what was that like? Oh my God, Vespertine! I mean, Vespertine. It was like that. It was you know even the trailer came out <laughs> and yeah. it was like this hilarious like object. We I think I probably spent about an hour with like my coworkers just like making fun of this trailer. I mean, it was like the menu. It was absurd. Basically. You know, it was yeah exactly, <laughs> which I haven't seen, but I really still want to actually. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was like it was like is this for real? Is this actually a joke? And then you heard more about it and yeah. it was like every kind of like bad fine dining cliche was just like times a million in this like uh, the, they walk you through a space and it's mm-hmm. a dedicated building. It's supposed to be like an UFO. And it was just rolling my eyes and I'm like this sounds so like it sounds like such it sounds so ridiculous. I have to go. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> yeah, like it just it's I, if it's good, if it's bad, you know, like I'm seeing Avatar tomorrow and it's the oh, same yeah. vibe where I'm like, this is just going to be like ridiculous one way or the other. Yeah. Love it or hate it. It's going to be interesting. So so I, I got tickets. You know, you had to go through talk. It was all prepaid. And this is a Los Angeles restaurant, to be clear. Yeah. We're saying we if you haven't heard of it by like the airport, I think like, yeah. I don't even know what the, what the neighborhood is. Yeah. Um, but. I was in LA to do, because I was launching Proto in New York and LA. I was in LA in like January of 2020, and I was popping around. And I, my, on the way to like my first stop before Vespertine, I lost my wallet in an Uber. Oh, God. And like, lost I'm, your wallet on the way to Vespertine. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm the kind of person who I have to physically be, I have like literally have OCD and I have to be physically holding my keys in my hand in order to be able to physically close the door. Yeah. Like I feel like an ache in my body if I'm not touching my, mm-hmm. my keys. Cause I, yeah. So it, losing my wallet is like the end of the world. And I'm also not like at home. Like I'm in LA. Like how do I get back to New York? 
And so I'm like freaking out. I'm like, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be the worst dinner. I'm going to be thinking about my thing all the time. I'm going to be checking my phone, like mm. trying to call the driver. I'm going to be totally preoccupied because I'm like really mentally ill. and like, fuck this. And like, mm. ugh. And then I had like the best time. It was like the best meal. And wow. I forgot all about my wallet. <laughs> so telling. And, and wow. Because it, really, it was really immersive. You know, it yeah. was like, it was so corny, but it was like, you know, it sounds corny, but it wasn't yeah. in the moment because it was executed so well. Yeah. And you and you know you're a professional so you and certainly have seen seen it all yeah. essentially. So for you to be impressed says a lot about Jordan Kahn and the restaurant there. And the and they really and the food is amazing. The food is like funny. There are a couple there are a couple places where I've been that are tasting many restaurants. One is called the Tipling Room in Singapore where like the actual the food actually makes you laugh. Like it's <laughs> a, it's a joke. Yeah, you know, like yeah. it's just something about it. It's like a surprise or some sort of silly like Trump Loy situation mm-hmm. where you just think it's like you know, you just get a little chuckle and it was a very similar and they didn't any pairing that I still haven't figured out what it what it, what it is like you know I it was you know listed ingredients but it wasn't like off the shelf products I think what they I think it might have been like a rotavap situation where yeah. they like removed a lot of like the aromatic acid and flavor from like juices and left the sugar behind that's my that's my best guess um, but also the service there was really great it was like very unintrusive and you know mm-hmm. a lot of fine dining experiences are like very overly solicitous and it's like yeah fold, like, folding the napkin like they check in times. too much yeah, and it's yeah. like they you're obviously not you you and you don't want to talk to them they're like in your face and then when you need you know, it's like so they, it, it, everything was perfect and, so for yeah. the na drinks like what struck you in terms of the way flavors without alcohol were kind of serving as alcohol as a pairing well it, it, a lot of it really reminded me of of like um sort of like lighter kind of rieslingy mm-hmm. sort of wines you know it was a lot of those like this thing like verjou and stuff like yeah that. it was yeah. a lot of verjouy kind of yeah it was a big verjou vibe but it was more <laughs> complicated than that and it was like you know kind of like that like you know foraged chamomile from you know el Segundo. i don't know like some some place in california like it was very california like fresh fruit vegetable flower infused into some sort of water yeah. mix that was not sweet at all um and it was perfect with with the food Love that. It reminds me of a NA pairing I had at Geranium in Copenhagen, and I w- was really just impressed with the way they cooked a lot of the juices, actually. They cooked them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember a sea buckthorn, um, like super yellow drink that was like bitter and sweet. It was really amazing. And I'm, I wanted to ask you this because I had read that. I was like, wow, I feel like NA pairings for like $60, $70, it might seem a little crazy, but it's actually – super enjoyable to your earlier point about if you're going to a meal you don't want to have alcohol sometimes sometimes yeah sometimes i mean not always yeah. but like i feel like if you're gonna have a tasting menu in particular yeah i mean i've definitely been to tasting menus where they where they serve the right amount of alcohol yes <laughs> but i've also been to tasting menus where they serve the wrong amount of alcohol yeah you know where you're just trashed by the end of it and you really like this it's not about that at all and it's like yeah so i, I think it's really it's a, it's an art um of course um but I, yeah, I do think that NA pairings for super fancy restaurants are like better. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Like maybe it's just my own like chauvinism towards like NA and my own like hyping of the category. But like I recently went to uh, Cato, mm-hmm. which is a restaurant in LA. Yeah. It was fabulous. It was so good. Um, and we, I did like a, my, my husband did the A pairing and I did the NA pairing. Mm. And like I tasted, we tasted both. We just shared it. Mm-hmm. And like it was, I thought that the NA pairing was more interesting. Completely. Yeah. Because it was like with, with you know, with the, with the quote regular pairing, a lot of it was just like, well, we found this model. <laughs> yeah. And it's like has great pedigree. Um, right. Certainly, you know, it comes from 
it's like a, sh- a champagne or a, right, exactly. know, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like, it was cool yeah. when done right to have like, okay, well, this is something that someone actually kind of more or less built from the ground up t- to taste compatible with this food rather than like found from a catalog, mm-hmm. which Love is not kind of underselling the, the skill of a sommelier, but like, you know what I mean? And I think you came correct at me when you kind of like said, Matt, well, there are some days who actually do it right and do the perfect <laughs> amount, and it's fair. I, I actually misspoke because you can have a wonderful alcohol pairing, and you're not going to just get bombed. Some but. of the best pairings have both. Yeah, that's true, yeah. actually. And and when you end the meal with <clears throat> NA as opposed to something super dark and boozy, mm-hmm. sometimes that's what you want, actually, mm-hmm. especially yeah. if you're driving home. John, one more, like, just mind-blowing bar experience that you've had in your life you want to talk about. I just – you probably have had a lot. <sighs> God, it's been a really long time since I've been, I've been yeah. <laughs> an out to a bar. All of us, yeah. Um, maybe, okay, maybe I'm cheating a little bit, but, like, it was not a, it was not going to a bar as, like, a guest per se, mm. but I'd say probably my favorite experience of, like, working, of, like, existing uh, in a bar is, was when I, I got to go to uh, Tokyo to bartend at the Park Hyatt mm. uh, with uh, Jim Meehan and, and Jeff Bell in, like, 2013, uh, and they, it was like, they flew us out. We stayed in the hotel. Whoa. Like we got to basically develop this menu. We had like press events with like Japanese GQ asking us questions. Uh, is it like a Plymouth thing? It was a, I think, I think it was Campari. Campari. Oh, sorry, no, 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 Bacardi. 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 It was Bacardi. Yeah. Um, that sponsored it. So that we had, so, that, so, um, but also it was like the Park Hyatt and like yeah. their budget's insane. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I basically got to like bartend at the top of the Park Hyatt, which is like the setting of the um, Lost in Translation mm-hmm. um, piano scene. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and we you know we got to bartend and we also got to go there as you know as guests. You know we were guests in the hotel, we were guests in the bar, and best guests in the restaurant. Um, and it was just one of those things that like. I don't know if my like you know sliding doors you know J- John DeBerry uh, Esquire uh, <laughs> parallel universe version of me would have ever like maybe he could have afforded to go to Japan yeah. and stay at the Park Hyatt but like the the fact that you got to like work there and like have this like really deep immersive experience and like just it was just you can't buy mm. you can, there's, there's no fancy Amex concierge that can make that happen mm-hmm. so it's like it was one of those things that definitely validated my choice to work in. Uh, in this industry. Work in those dark rooms and walk in the yeah. PDT in 2008. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, I want to um, talk about your your writing because, you know, what drew, drew, drives me to you is not just the way you talk about drinks, but you, the way you write about drinks. You have great style and voice. I love the voice. It's really funny. <laughs> and um, Drink What You Want was your, your first book, but you're about to release in the spring of 2023 another book. Let's talk about that a bit. Yeah, it's called Saved by the Bellini. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. That's great. So is it like throwback drinks? No, it's not actually. It's just like a play on like save. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think I, I could never make anything just like straightforward. So no. Well, that's called humor. <laughs> it's called wit. Yeah. So it's always like it requires like five explanations. So like, so the book is based. The book is is sixty five. I think ish sixty sixty. Let's say sixty something. Uh, mm. Original cocktails that are that are inspired by nineties pop culture iconic 90s pop culture items my gosh yeah let's go give yeah. me give me a couple please give us all <sighs> let us get, okay so there's a so um so this is this is also like you know bear with me but yeah. um i have this dark and stormy riff called the dark and dark and dady 
It's mm. like D and D, uh, and it's basically like Goslings where you puree um, dates into it and make it like this date infused Goslings, and it's basically just dark and stormy after that. But it is it is <laughs> not based on Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. It is based. Uh, it is uh, it exists in the world of Melrose Place. Oh. Um, yeah. I'm familiar. And so Melrose Place was actually really I somehow I got to watch Melrose Place when I was like ten years old. I think my parents just didn't know what it was, but it was like one of the first TV shows that had a gay person on it. Yeah. So that was interesting for me. I also just like kinda it was just sort of like I just it was on TV. It was on like Fox Five at like eight PM on a Wednesday. So I oh, just yeah. watched it, you know? Um but I later learned that there was this conceptual artist, his name is Mel Chin, and he worked with uh, a museum, a modern museum in Los Angeles to strategically place uh, like sort of very subversive, very progressive uh, props on the set of Melrose Place. <gasps> so there's things like there's um, uh, a blanket that one of the characters is wearing, is, uh, you know, sleeping under or Courtney Thorne Smith, likely. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Or like Daphne Zuniga or whatever. God, Daphne Zuniga. <laughs> love her. Yeah. And, um, and it's like unru- it's unwrapped uh, condom condoms like printed on the thing and there's another like quilt with like the chemical structure of RU486 <laughs> and it's like during a scene when the character so, is talking about getting an abortion such a wow what what po- poetic uh prop placement yeah 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 and then really there's smart. like a a billiard table with like you know like uh messages about racism and then there's like bottles that have like this history of alcohol in them so there's these really big easter eggs literally mm-hmm. um and then in the show the uh, Amanda takes yeah. the character Heather her, Locklear. Heather Locklear's let's, character. Let's, let's, let's come correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. She takes her 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 agency that she took over and called it's called D and D. Took over uh, her her like basically like from inside. She took over this, this advertising agency, and then that agency in the show took on the, the museum as a client and put on an art show in the show for the museum that in real life was like providing prop pieces to. The show, and now those pieces are all in. I don't know if they're still on exhibit on ex- exhibition, but they're they're now like you know these works of art that have like been in this like really really convoluted Rube Goldberg conceptual art project that was like went completely unnoticed. Yeah, the no one wrote about it. There was really very little internet criticism. There was very little internet at that time. Yeah, so you couldn't really. So how did you come across <laughs> this connection? Uh, a lot of I read I like read a lot of books yeah. about the nineties. Um there's Chuck Klosterman did a really good nineties yeah. book. Um there's a movie a book called The Best Movie Year Ever. That's mm-hmm. all about the year in nineteen ninety nine yeah. and how it was like the best movie year that's ever happened. And I just I read a lot about the nineties and like the overall kind of vibe of like this really like deliberate and like very heavy handed indifference towards everything and the way that there was this kind of Fendisiecla Literally, <laughs> feeling you know about like the Y2K, like remember that, like yeah, you know people didn't know. You know, it was just like a wild time, and it was like also this really, really um, chaotic trans like transformation between like think about like, the way that your life. I don't know. We're probably around the same age, but like, think about like what your life was like in like 1990. Yeah, and then what your life was like in 2000. Yeah, absolutely great. Versus point. 2000 versus 2010. Yeah. And then we, 2010 versus now. It's like 2010 and now are kind of the same. The, yeah, the jumps were dramatic <laughs> from 90 to 20. I mean, you got the early 90s, which was obviously like slacker Gen X era. Yeah. And then you get into that Y2K. Right. So it was super pivotal. So it was a really fascinating decade to like 
explore. And so I found a lot of little tidbits and then lots of, a lot of it's just drawn from my own personal experience. Yeah. Like I have a magic card cocktail <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, En Vogue's Funky Divas was like, my brother gave it to me for my birthday when I was in fourth grade. And it was like when I played it so, you know, so yeah. I have like an En Vogue cocktail, you know, I've got like Zelda, Link to the Past. Was there know, anything, t- any TLC reference in the Oh yeah, in the there's, a, there's a waterfall, okay. uh, a waterfalls um, sangria. Because, you know, sangria is about patience and waiting for it to, like, sort of do its thing in the refrigerator with the fruit. And so that's (laughs) Waterfall is also about sort of, like, patience. I love it. it Is there a Models, Inc. reference? Ooh, no. You know, the the ill-fated spinoff of Melrose Place that only had one season that had a total cliffhanger at the end of the season one episode, an absolute cliffhanger that involved a a sniper (laughs) and a shot and then the fade to black and then no season two. Wow. So just... That's amazing. Is it model thing? So I had to go on my, my that that tangent. Now I love the '90s. Is there one more? I just like we're gonna talk about this more when it comes out. But is there one more reference that you really feel like proud of in the book that you're like, wow, I got that through? I mean, there's a lot probably. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I I got I got to work with someone who is also just like a very dear friend, my editor Amanda Englander, and we like our text message conversation is just so wild like it was it's just like it's the the record of the, how this book came together was like very very intense we had so many ideas there were a lot of things that were rightfully too deep of cuts to, <laughs> to, to end up in a book um i did a so the I actually have like a food fifty two video i did a couple videos uh about of, of the the drinks um in the book, so you'll you'll see me demo them, and I think in the video which I already recorded, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. um, I called it like my most morally reprehensible cocktail <laughs> <laughs> because it's a it's named it's it's inspired by the bazooka, which is this Nerf gun from the '90s that had this like five chamber like Gatling gun that just like pounded out these little Nerf balls. Yo, John, like I had like total battles with that. Oh Plus yeah, me the too. Single one too. Yeah, the popper, the sharpshooter, the sharpshooter. Yeah, yeah, yeah there yeah. was like the bow and arrow. I had a Nerf bow and arrow. I yeah. had a Nerf war like two months ago for my fortieth birthday. Like I rented a house and I like made my friends buy Nerf guns and we all did. Yeah, it was nuts. Um, so yeah, it was pretty amazing. And so uh, I actually found Balzukas on eBay and paid money for them. And now they're <laughs> sitting in my house. And so like, Balzuka is like the five shot, yeah. not arrows but balls. Well, yeah, balls. these like balls, yeah. and the balls are actually really hard to find, and it's like this whole <laughs> secondary market of like Balzuka balls and like Reddit threads about how yeah. to make them. Anyway, um, so I did this like Midori uh, blue curacao uh, uh, tapioca ball mm. uh, Mountain Dew uh, cocktail, <laughs> where you basically make tapioca pearls. You buy the green tea ones, so they're like kind of light green, and then you you cook them. You basically boil them in water, and then you in, you're supposed to use like cold water to chill them, and then put yeah. them in your drink. But instead of using cold water, you use Midori. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. I like that. So they're these neon green things, and then you put them in this in this <laughs> drink that's basically just like Mountain Dew and Blue Curacao, like lime juice and Rayan Nephew, and it's just yeah. sort of like highball with like these bright blue things, and you have a you have like a tapioca, uh, you know, a tapioca straw, you know, boba tea straw, um, and it's like this. It's just revol- it looks revolting. It's completely unnatural. You know, it'll probably make your ADHD way worse. But like, <laughs> it's just so fun and so cool, and like it's. A lot of these drinks, like on paper, like look vile, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you gotta trust. You gotta, you gotta hang with you and trust you. But, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, they actually ended they're up delicious. Taste, they ended up tasting 
pretty good, if I do say so myself. You know? Do you ever have you ever bought dead stock soda off Amazon or eBay? eBay mostly. I thought about doing it with Clearly Canadian. Yeah, which they rebooted. Which is back. Yeah, yeah. which I got a case. It was dope. Yeah, really good. I got New York Seltzer too. Ooh, NY Seltzer is now back. Have yeah. you bought, you've never bought anything? Uh, dead stock soda. No, I can't say I have. Um, I did. I mean, it's not dead stock, but like my friend bought a case of Flamin' Hot Mountain Dew for her yeah. son, and they both hated it. And I was cat sitting for her, <laughs> and I drank one, and I felt really guilty about it. And I took a picture of myself, and it was like the can was in the background, and my friend was like, "Did you drink one of those?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm really sorry." And she's like, "Can you please take them?" Oh God! <laughs> so I have like a, so- it's. I, I think it's. I think it's still out. Like I think you can still buy Flame and Hot Mountain Dew. That had a moment on Twitter. Now, what about Josta? Do you remember Josta? Whoa, what is that? Josta was a PepsiCo product from like 1996, 1997. It used a guarana berry from I think Brazil. Wow. It. I I've bought Deadstock Josta off off uh, eBay. It's it's really good. Interesting. It's good. It's really good, but really bad. Yeah, they shouldn't have killed that one, but. I think I may have tried to buy I one of the th- one of the things that didn't work out for my book is I had tried to create um like homebrew crystal clear Pepsi. Yeah. It did not work. Yeah, that yeah. that that is the one that I think a lot of people try to buy. Uh it did not work. I mean, it's a very unique flavor. Plus like Van Halen. Mm. Like I mean, those Van- ads are amazing. Yeah. Truly the best. I mean, but like holy shit. Do, do you remember what it tastes like? What how do you Yeah, argue? I do actually. What's the flavor to you then? It's well, I think that the main difference between like Pepsi and Coca-Cola is that Pepsi doesn't have as much acid in it. Yeah. It's like a it's like a sweeter yeah. profile. Um and so I think what Crystal Clear Pepsi does is that it has I don't know, maybe this is something where it's like this the synthetic sense of like you know you're tasting something clear, so it creates this kind of extra feeling of brightness in, you know, when you put it all together in your brain. But like it just tastes brighter to me. It tastes like it's like has more acidity in it. It's, it's a little crisper and like yeah. And like, I mean, also caramel coloring. It does, it doesn't not affect the flavor. You know, you don't put very much in. You'd be surprised how little it actually is in there. But like, it's still there. Yeah, it's cleaner. Yeah, you're right. The finish is definitely cleaner than like the cloying Coca Cola finish. Yeah, well said. John, we ask all guests on today's podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have <laughs> all the money in the world, John, what would this book be? Uh, okay, so I have my, I have, my, I have a friend, uh, his name is Pasha, and he, uh, he lives in Houston, he owns a bar, but he also works for NASA, and he works in the department that monitors uh, astronauts' health. Mm-hmm. And wow. he and I, you know, we bullshit over texts. You know, I use him as a source in pieces every once in a while. And we were, were sort of like flirting with this idea of making like a, like an astronaut cocktail book. And, you know, of course, it would just be like a cute <laughs> little book that would be like, oh, you know, like this is drinks you can make in space. But if I didn't have the burden of budget, I would actually make drinks like in space yeah and like develop them in space and then also so basically like what you can and can't do in in microgravity and with you know the weight restrictions and what alcohol does to your body physiologically if you're in space you know who knows you know i don't know have people gotten drunk on the iss like i don't, I don't know i mean probably absolutely. a really bad idea probably gonna really fuck you up like yeah. very fast i mean yeah I would so imagine. it's basically like the, the like in 10 years like space hotel you know, let's like how do you how do you develop a cocktail program for your space hotel? So that would be like my 
my, my, or my book idea. being the, the Virgin Galactic mixologist um, on staff. Yeah, Richard Branson. Hit like, hit you up. Now, I got to say, you probably can find out about ISS, like, within a couple calls. Like, <laughs> there's, there's, those guys are hanging out there. <laughs> I love that. That's really clever, and I think it, it's also just, like, really curious, which I think is what you're, why, why you're so great. Yeah. Like, that'd be fun. I mean, it'd be fun. It also probably would necessitate a lot of non-alcohol <laughs> cocktails yeah, because, that's because yeah. of safety issues. Yeah. Um, but, like, you could ferment something in, like, what weird piece of equipment, equipment could you ferment <laughs> like space ice cream in. Interesting. John DeBerry, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. <laughs> thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>